Welcome to Live on Purpose Radio with Dr. Paul Jenkins, where you will hear inspiring stories of ordinary people doing extraordinary things. Feed your mind with a regular dose of positive energy and show up for your life every day on purpose. Living on purpose means that you have a purpose and you do it intentionally. And now, here's your host, Dr. Paul. Hello and welcome back to Live on Purpose Radio. This is Dr. Paul, the shrink who expands your life with another episode of Live on Purpose Radio. Joining me today is a renowned psychologist and author and educator, Dr. Richard Nisbet has received the award for distinguished scientific contributions from the American Psychological Association and many other national and international awards. He has recently released his his newest book is called Thinking, which is primarily a memoir, an autobiographical look at what this great thinker has accomplished. I don't know if you get introduced as a great thinker uh, very often, Richard, but I'm going to start with that and welcome you to Live on Purpose Radio. I can live with that. Thanks. (laughs) Well, it's interesting what you've learned through your career. Now, in reading your book, I can see that you've had quite a journey. And you have become uh, one of the leading authorities, I would say, in the area of reasoning processes, basically the way we think as human beings And it is fraught with some inherent errors that lead to problems in our society and in our relationships. There's so many applications for this, but could you just take a moment and share at least the brief version of what your journey has been? Why is this topic one of such great importance to you personally? Well, I'm not sure I could say why it became terribly interesting to me. Uh, I can tell you some of the things that happened along the way that made a big impression on me and just Mm -hmm. sort of tunneled me into the work that I'm doing. Uh, In some of the early research I did, uh, I would have subjects in an experiment and I would set things up so that I knew that they would think a certain way or they would behave a certain way. uh, And I knew why. And then I would after they'd done what I knew they would do, I asked them why they did it, and they make up stories. Uh, they're not lying, they're doing their best, but they're not, they don't really know what it was that made them think the way they did and therefore behave the way they did. So this uh, inability to actually directly observe our own thinking processes is what got me started on the whole question of reasoning. Mm. It's, a, it's an interesting concept in and of itself. Uh, I know through my career in clinical psychology uh, and, and more recently in the area of positive psychology, it's become very apparent to me that we, we are driven often by our thought processes, but we don't often stop to actually think about our own thinking. Right. And and the ability to do that is kind of something that I think sets us apart from other species. 
that we have the ability when it's called to our attention to, to back off and actually take a look at our own thinking processes. And you've basically made a career out of that. Right. At examining the, the thought processes themselves. Right. And my basic message on that question is that we can't directly observe our cognitive processes. They're hidden from us. If you ask me why I did something, I'll tell you the thoughts that were in my head, the things that I was seeing, uh, the, uh, the various notions that drifted through my head. And all of that's accurate. It was there, but it isn't what was good. It isn't what was doing the work. <clears throat> and a lot of the experiments show that kind of uh, lack of transparency about our thinking processes. For example, mm. nylon stockings down in a, in, a, uh, in a mall, and we ask people to judge the quality of these nylon stockings. Now, they're all identical, as a matter of fact. But people take the task seriously, and they give us a judgment. And I say, oh, wh why did you pick those out? Well, they like the texture and the sheerness. The color was very good. Uh, but what we found is that people were four times as likely to say that the last object they examined was the best, and that four times as likely as the first object that they examined. But of course, the people have no idea uh, that they're doing that. They have no idea that they have this kind of rule of, well, the last one is probably the best. Um, so we did dozens of experiments like that, showing that people have make judgments, they behave in ways that uh, have certain outcome. And when you ask them why, they do their best uh, to say what went through their heads, uh, but they're often wrong. That isn't what went through their heads. It was something else altogether, like the mere position of the object. Mm. You've, you just triggered a thought for me that I've, uh, I've been looking forward to asking you with your particular skill set and your experience. Um, it, we have these, these thoughts, and I've often said to my, to my clients, you know you're right. And it's not that you think you're right. You know you're right. At some level, we believe our own thought process regardless of how accurate it might be. Do you have some thoughts about that? Well, I, it's just that, you know, the, the major thought is we can't observe our thought processes directly. We're making an inference about what someone uh, did, why they think they did it. That's pretty much the way we would make an inference about the, uh, some, uh, some other person's behavior. Uh, yeah. But that can be quite mistaken. There, there's a wonderful example of this from the world of chess. If you set someone to playing chess for the first time, uh, they're bewildered. They don't, they don't know what they're doing, really. Uh, they, but they do have strategies. They just don't realize what those strategies are. And at the end of the game, you say, tell me, what rules were you using? Or why did you move that knight the way? So I don't know. I was just moving the pieces around. I, I have no idea. In fact, they were following what's called Duffer's strategy. <laughs> Everybody plays chess the same way the first time around. Now, if they persist in it and they read 
books on it and they talk to experts. Uh, they now, of course, are playing for real. They're doing a good job. Uh, and they know exactly why they did it. I moved that rook in the way I did in order to threaten the queen, whatever. Uh, mm -hmm. But if they keep at it and they play chess for years and years and you ask them why they made a particular move or you try to f find out what the rules are uh, that they were using, they're again inarticulate. They're mistaken. Uh, we know what they, why they did what they did. Uh, but people themselves no longer know, uh, partly because they've forgotten the explicit rules uh, they were learning when they were taking the game seriously at first, and partly because they've induced unconsciously certain kinds of strategies that they put into play in a game. But they're, So they're not accurate at all. It, there's a, an analogy here to, to grammar. If you ask people to, uh, to tell you the rules of their grammar, I mean, we're just hopelessly inaccurate at it. Don't we don't know. know what, we don't know in a conscious way what they are. We just, we follow right. them. We rarely make an error, but we don't know what the rules are in a conscious way. Right. It, it, it requires a completely different line of thought to look at the structure or the rules that are underlying what we do so naturally or what we're driven to do by our thought processes. I sometimes um, think of it as programming. Um, like language, we're programmed to speak a certain language by people who didn't even give us a choice. But our conscious awareness of that process is very limited. And I think right. that's part of what you're pointing out here. Right. Exactly. So why, why are we so prone to error in our reasoning well, processes? What, what have you learned about them? Well, uh, you know, I, I, after a career of studying reasoning, and for a while I was studying intelligence, um, and which of course involves reasoning, uh, but uh, I began to realize that we live in a world now which is completely different from what it was 120 years or so ago. Yeah, we get we get. Uh, uh, information in statistical form or graphic form or complex verbal form. And uh, our reasoning processes were adequate when, when we were all farmers or, or, or handymen or plumbers. But now that people have complex kinds of jobs, in order to be effective, you have to understand, for example, statistical rules, probability, the rules of probability. Uh, cost-benefit analysis. And if you don't understand those things, you're going to make errors, sometimes very serious errors. Right. This leads to some of the problems that we're encountering in our, in our society, in our world. Um, obviously, if our behavior is driven by our thinking, and if our thinking is, is flawed because of the attributional errors that we make or because of the, um, the inferences that you referred to earlier, and we're not even aware that we're doing that, right. then people forge ahead with whatever their thought pattern is without even giving a thought to the possibility that it could be inaccurate. Right. We're way overconfident. It's interesting. We're way over. 
We're way yeah. overconfident about our judgment, which it's easy to show is riddled with errors, but we're not overconfident about our memories. If you, you ask me, what do you think about your mom? I'm making memory errors all the time. Uh, uh-huh. And, uh, but judgment, no, we, we, you know, I, I, the world is the way I see it. And I rarely tend to quite question that. It's other people that make us question that. And, and if they do, we usually know it's you who's wrong, mister, not me. Right. There's an initial resistance to it if it's called to our attention. Right. Usually. <laughs> Well, just inside of my own uh, thought process around this, Richard, I'm noticing that that this is, in fact, the source of a lot of the the conflicts that come up. We know that we're right, or at least we never even question the possibility that we might be inaccurate in our reasoning and in our thinking. Right. And that's what I love about this concept that you've brought to light here for us. When we come back from this break, I'm I'm eager to get into a conversation with you also about what kind of reasoning processes might help us to avoid some of the errors that we encounter. I think you might have some thoughts about that. Okay, very good. This is Richard Nisbet at Live On Purpose Radio. We'll be right back. Are you ready to take your positivity to a whole new level? I've been enjoying these conversations with my guests at Live On Purpose Radio. My own story about becoming more positive is something that I've shared in my book, Pathological Positivity. And right now I'm giving the book away. You just pay for the shipping. Go to drpauljenkins.com, spelled with a D-R, and click on the big orange button right there that will get you a free copy of my book. You pay the shipping, I'll pay for the book. Sound like a good deal? Power up your positivity and get ready to see phenomenal changes in your happiness, your relationships, your business, every aspect of life. Enjoy this free gift from me. DrPaulJenkins.com And we're back. Richard Nisbet today at Live On Purpose Radio. Um, I'm enjoying this conversation, Richard. You've done some heavy thinking around some things that I've kind of experimented with uh, on a less formal basis. My, My training is in clinical psychology, And I specialize now in the area of positive psychology. So I haven't gotten into some of the the research and and, um, looking very closely at these processes like you have done. And it's been refreshing to see that some of the inferences I was making uh, are consistent with uh, some of the findings that you've found through, through this research that you've done. I'm curious as we get into this second half of our conversation, if there's something that we can do to raise our awareness of these processes and maybe implement some different kinds of processes that would help us to avoid some of the errors that are so common. Right. Where does that take you? Well, uh, let me give an example uh, of a kind of error that uh, we make. 
Um, yeah. we, we don't have a sufficient recognition of the importance of the, what's called the law of large numbers. That is, how much evidence do we need to have to make a particular judgment? If I see someone in Kmart behave in a nasty way toward their kid, I can say, well, that's an aggressive, nasty person, a terrible parent. Uh, rather than saying, well, what, what might the situation be? What has the kid done that's so bad? How bad has the kid been that today? How bad is the, the mood of the, of the parent? Rather than uh, assuming that the situation is responsible for behavior, I assume it's a, a personality trait. So that's yeah. uh, one common error is to make uh, hasty judgments about a person's character or personality from a behavior which may very well have been situationally determined. Mm. Um, other uh, ways that we get tripped up by our failure to understand uh, the law of large numbers and the importance of paying attention to situations um, is uh, that employers often will use a half hour interview to screen job applicants or a half-hour interview is often used to screen applicants to college. It turns out that the half-hour let's get acquainted interview is worthless as a prediction of academic success, success in the military, success as a doctor, uh, success as a, a business executive. Uh, and yet we feel confident. We, we know something. I, you know, I can tell. I don't know exactly how smart this guy is, but he seems pretty darn smart to me. Uh, or uh, I don't know how nice this person is, but he's been very pleasant to me. I mean, we, the judgment that we make about, about those interviews is vastly more conf confident than we have any right to be if you're a scientist keeping track of what those predictions are exactly and what the outcomes uh, are. And uh, this is another case of, an, of a failure to understand the importance of the law of large numbers, which is we need lots more evidence uh, than we think in order to make a, a prediction. And we often have much more evidence than that. We have letters of recommendation, we have a history of prior employment and so on. Um, so one way to make, make better judgments is to realize that a small amount of personally obtained evidence may be much inferior to evidence that we can get in some other way from other people or other documents. Although our confidence is artificially uh, elevated when we when we take certain types of information in. Um, we, we might be more confident about the interview because it was a personal experience that we had. But right. what you're suggesting here is that that is often not more accurate. In fact, it's not a very good predictor right. uh, for the things that we're trying to screen for. Right. Another example would be... Um, you know, I have a, a terrific meal in a particular restaurant and odds are the next time I go to the restaurant, it's, you know, it's very good, but certainly not terrific. I don't know how I managed to get it wrong the last time. Well, I didn't get it wrong the last time uh, and I'm not getting it wrong now. It's just uh, restaurant meals in any given place, any given restaurant 
are variable in quality. And every now and then I'm going to get an extreme, extremely bad or extremely good. And that's not enough evidence for me to tell exactly how good that, that restaurant is. I, I need to have more information. Or even right. a, a simpler kind of thing. I spent a week uh, when I was uh, in my 20s, I spent a week in London. And it was a beautiful day every day. Blue skies, temperatures in the low 70s. And I got to thinking, you know, these English, they're such crybabies about the weather. It's lovely here. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I, I got my uh, comeuppance. Uh, I spent a a week a few years later, and it rained every single minute I was there. Uh, Now, was I so stupid as to believe that that weather in London isn't variable? No, if you'd ask me, do do I think that London... Weather is very visible. London weather is like weather everywhere, and it's variable. It's just in general weather in, in, in London. But that's not the inference I made. I mean, I did, my personal experience was the weather was swell in London. So mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. not enough evidence to make the judgment, in other words. Right. The, and you're not wrong about that judgment uh, based on that small data set. Well, the judgment, I, the judgment I made is the weather is pretty darn nice in England. I Which mean, is a that's generalization. Was, that was wrong. That's right. Yeah. Was... And, and that, I think, reflects as, as we get stuck inside of our own perceptions and our, our own experiences, we tend to roll with whatever our conclusions are with a fairly high level of confidence that right. is not justified based on the, the rules of, of how we come up with those predictions. Right. I can see so many ways that that can run us into trouble. I, I think I'm reading between the lines here to see that to remedy that, we would need to pause long enough to question our own thinking. Or our own conclusions. What what have you found to be maybe the, one of the most helpful ways to look at um, alternative reasoning processes? How do we start to implement those when we're so used to thinking the way that we already do? Well, you can teach people the law of large numbers and how broadly applicable it is. And it does change the way they make judgments. Um, even... Uh, you know, I found that uh, University of Michigan students greatly improve their reasoning along the lines of the kind of problems I look at from the time they enter college to the time they get their college degree. Uh, they're much less likely to make errors of being overconfident uh, about a judgment about a small amount of information. Uh, so, uh, but that's one of many kinds of examples of, of, uh, of things that people learn in college. They learn lots of statistical rules. For example, the, the rule of regression, uh, where they learn an extreme event uh, is probably not going to be so extreme when you look at it again. <clears throat> uh, they learn how to make cost-benefit judgments. Uh, better uh, than when they started college. So a formal education does make us better at a wide range of judgments. Uh, 
but it, it leaves us with errors, like, for instance, me deciding that the weather is swell in London. <laughs> uh-huh. Right. You know, I read a book recently. It was called Talking to Strangers uh, by Malcolm Gladwell. And he, I think, has been influenced by you and your work. In fact, on the front of your book is a statement that's, that, uh, that you... Richard and Isbet have been, well, let me read it. The most influential thinker in my life has been the psychologist Richard Nisbet. He basically gave me my view of the world, and that's by Malcolm Gladwell, right on the front of your book. And as we're having this conversation, I can see some similar themes that he was presenting in his book, Talking to Strangers, where, you know, in, in the interview, for example, we think... Uh, from an interview that we can predict certain things or that we know certain things about a person and their character when, when really that's, uh, that's not a very accurate way to make those predictions. Right. And um, the, the openness that we have to a new way of thinking, you mentioned formal education and you've noticed this with some of the students at the university level that they can be, brought to a point where they are doing more rigorous, um, disciplined kind of reasoning. Right. Um, short of a formal education, I think simply having the awareness, listening to a podcast like this and pausing to think, wait, what is it that I'm really confident about that I may be dead wrong about? Right. Uh, I think just that level of awareness is going to help us as well. You have some additional thoughts about that. Well, let me give an example of the way that we can get uh, better reasoning about a whole class of problems. If you ask a University of Michigan freshman on the way in, you say, you know, in a, every baseball season, there are a few batters early on who have a batter batting average of 450 or higher, yet no one has ever finished uh, the season with a, an average that high. Why do you think that is? Well, they start to do causal reasoning. Say, well, maybe the pitchers make the necessary adjustments or maybe they get cocky and slack off. At the end of their career at the University of Michigan, they're likely to say, well, you know, Early in the season, there aren't that many at-bats. Uh, think about it. Uh, the first bat, uh, you have uh, an average of either zero or one. <laughs> Very extreme scores. As right. you begin to get more and more evidence, you know, extreme scores become less and less frequent because the overall average of human beings at baseball is a lot less than 450. Uh, so yeah. they've learned how to apply the law of large numbers uh, to everyday life events. And they're particularly likely to do that if they've had a statistics course um, to learn about uh, the law of large numbers, which is what they're failing to apply uh, when they're freshmen. They can apply it to a much wider range of circumstances uh, at the end of a college education. We, we learn basically that we need a broader view of it. 
we need to have more data points. The, the conclusions that we draw, and it's, it's not magic, it's based on uh, very determined processes and principles of mathematics and statistics. Uh, you know, I, I, I mentioned in my book um, that we all suffer from a little syndrome that I call the special case syndrome, where we kind of believe in our heart and mind that somehow we're a special case. When really we're another example of of someone who's going to fit the statistics for the most part. Right. Yeah. I, I love that point. Uh, we all think we're unique. I mean, if you ask somebody, oh, here's a, a, an example of this kind of error. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, you say there's a kid named David L. He has to decide where to go to college. He has a choice between two schools. They're both, about equally distant from home, about equally uh, prestigious. Um, but his friends uh, at College A <clears throat> are not very happy there. They don't think that uh, they're not wild about either the intellectual or the social aspects of the college. At College B, uh, they are very happy about it. But he visits both colleges and goes to College A and he meets a couple of really fascinating people and he taught how a professor takes a personal interest in him and he goes away with a very good impression. Then he goes to B that his friends like and you know, he, a couple of professors give him the brush off. He meets some kids who are not all that interesting. Uh, where do you think he should go? A, a, a UM freshman will tell you without fail <laughs> that he should go where he likes. He's not his friends. His, uh, uh, he's, he's his own particular special person and he liked that particular cause. Sorry, <laughs> that, that's a wrong answer. Um, <laughs> it, it, it's another example of the interview case. I mean, uh, if you ask, if you, if you, before you ask them the question, where should he go? You, if you say, he drew up a list of the places he was going to go, the kind of people he wanted to talk to and so on, and then uh, points randomly on the page because he can't do everything he'd like, that tips them off to the fact that this is a probabilistic situation here. Uh, he might yeah. be just meeting the one professor at this university who, you know, who would take a personal interest in him. Um, so um, if people... And again, this is the kind of problem if a college education helps you to do better with. You're less likely to say, go to that place you spent one day at instead of the place where your friends have spent scores of days. And partly yes. it's because we think we're unique. You know, I'm, I'm not my friends. I'm, you know, no, you're not. With respect to how much you're going to like that college, you're not unique. You're very much like your friends. So there's an expression, you were the average of the half dozen people you spend the most time with. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, Richard, this has been a fascinating conversation to me. I want to, to give people a way to connect with you. There's a website, Richard Nisbet, spelled N-I-S-B-E-T-T.com. And Richard, that's where people can learn more about you, connect to the books that you've written and some of this uh thinking that we've been discussing here today. Um, the book that I've referred to today is, is titled 
thinking. This is a memoir. It's an autobiographical journey uh, that we get to take along with Richard. And that was just published recently. Um, the, I'm, I'm sure they can connect to this wherever they buy books. Richard, is there anything else that you'd like to uh, mention in terms of how people can connect to you? Well, they can write nisbet at umich or University of Michigan edu. I'd be I'd happy to respond to questions or comments. Wonderful. Well, thank you for your contributions here today at Live On Purpose Radio. It's been delightful to talk to you today. Thank you. Folks, you've heard it from Richard Nisbet here at Live On Purpose Radio today. It's time for us to, to now go apply what we've learned as we all get to live on purpose. <laughs>